Welcome once again to the Sunday morning gathering of Redemption Hill Church. For those who don't know me, my name is Raymond. I'm, I'm not new here. I, you probably haven't seen me for a bit, but I've actually been here since the church started in January of 2008, and I'm one of the pastors here as well. I'm going to be covering Exodus chapters 1 through 14 this morning as we continue our series that we're entitling The Drama of Redemption. We're trying to get the main storyline of the Bible from beginning to end. And so we'll pick up today, I'll actually take us into captivity and try to get us out all in one message. So let's pray together. We'll make sure that, that God gives us some help here. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, help me. Help me as I try to communicate things about you that are true. Not just true back in the time of Joseph or Moses, but true today. Um, and help me. Help me to do that in a way that would honor you. And I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read, starting in Genesis chapter 15, a, a promise that God made to Abraham over 4,000 years ago. And from there, I'm going to fast forward three generations to where Ryan Burns was last week. And we're going to read Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, reiterating that promise to those who had come from the land that God was promising them over to Egypt where Joseph had gone before them. And then after I do that, I'm going to start reading portions of Exodus. I'm just going to start reading Exodus, actually chapter 1, verse 8 through 14. All right, so follow along with me starting in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 to 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, and I'll just say Abraham, know for certain. It's interesting, today you're not allowed to know anything for certain. If you ask somebody, do you know for certain that we can't know anything for certain, watch what happens to them. They'll say, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe we can know something for certain. Yes, we can. And one of those things is right here. God looks at Abram, Abraham, and he says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Three generations later, Abraham's great-grandson Joseph would say this to those of Abraham's family who had come over to Egypt. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 through 14, we're about to get into captivity. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, see, sometimes God uses our suffering to advance his plans and his purposes. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. 
And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service. Skip down to Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Moses had been born by this time. More than likely were centuries after uh, Abraham or, and, and Joseph and all that sort of thing. And, and here it is, Genesis, or rather Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those days, those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Now, notice, it doesn't say here that they necessarily directed their cry to anyone in particular. They cried out for help. And someone was listening. Listen. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew and he was about to do something about it. Let's pray one more time. Lord, help us again as we try to get a sense of what you're doing over a stretch of, I don't know, 600, 500 years, all in one moment, all in one 40-minute segment. Help us to, to see those things that are still true of you today so that we can relate to you properly. And everybody said, Amen. As I was reading this and preparing and praying, at the end of Genesis, Joseph dies, and you, he, he actually makes plans for his descendants to carry his bones from Egypt. When the time comes for God to bring them back to the land that he has promised, he said, make sure you carry my bones from this place and take them with you. And so here they are making plans to transport this coffin one day that they've put Joseph in, and it reminded me of a story I heard this week, and I thought I'd share it with you. There was a guy who actually took his family on vacation. They went to Jerusalem. He took his wife, his kids, and his mother-in-law. Now, his, his mother-in-law was family. He loved her dearly, uh, but to say that she nagged him constantly would be an understatement, and, and everybody who knew her best would tell you that this was the case. Now, unfortunately, while they were over there in Jerusalem, she passed away. And so in the midst of all their grieving, they actually had to figure out what to do with the body. And there was a guy there who operated a funeral home, and, and so they all went there, and, and they were discussing options, and he said, basically, there are two things we can do. We can either bury her here I mean, for a small cost of about $150, or we can, we can ship her back to the States. That will cost you about $5,000, though. And so the guy, smart, smart guy, looks at his wife. It's, his, it's her mother. He looks at his wife, and, and she says, you know, sweetie, gosh, we just spent a lot of money. We don't have very much. I, it wouldn't matter to mom. I know it wouldn't, I, but I can't decide. I'm just, I can't make this decision. Whatever you decide, I'll be fine with. And so the guy, the guy says, all right, honey. He looks to the guy who operates a funeral home, and he says, you know, we're just going to have to ship her back. And at this point, the, the guy who operated the funeral home is very confused, but you know, it, it's, it's their decision. So he, he takes the husband aside, they're working through logistics, and 
and he just, he's so curious, he asks him, tell, tell me, I, I, I've never had anybody take that option before. There's just so much involved and it costs so much more. What made you decide that? And the guy looks over his shoulder and says, look, man, man, I, I love that woman. But, but, man, she nagged me every single day of my life. I heard a long time ago they buried a carpenter in this place, and three days later he came back. <laughs> he said, I'm not willing to take that chance. <laughs> and, and as I thought about that, you know... It, as funny as that is, I'm not willing to take a certain chance this morning. I'm not willing to take the chance that just because most of us are familiar with what Exodus chapters 1 through 14 is talking about, most of us know the story of what God did to bring Israel out of Egypt, but I'm not willing to take the chance that all of us really understand why he did it and how it connects to our lives today. So that's what we're going to look at as we go through Exodus, these early chapters together. Why did God do this? What was he after? What was motivating him? And how does it connect to our lives today? Let's start looking at the end of Exodus chapter 2 because we get a clue to it right here. It says in verse 23 through 25, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God, hearing their groaning, he heard their groaning, rather, and God did what? He remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham, you're going to have some descendants and they're going to be sojourners or strangers in a land that is not their own. And part of what's going to happen to them when they're there is for 400 years. Everybody say 400. For 400 years, they are going to be brutally mistreated. They are going to be the victims of injustice for 400 years. But then I'm going to come and get them. I'm going to take them out. I'm going to rescue them after those 400 years. And I'm going to bring them back here. And God made a promise some 500 years before he would act through Moses. And 500 plus years later, that promise was still directing the course of God's affairs with mankind. Now, I'm not God. I don't have a perfect record when it comes to keeping my promises, but I do try my best. Most of you are probably like me. Maybe you forget your words sometimes, and that keeps you from actually following through and keeping your promise. But I, I remember the biggest promise I've made, I think, was six and a half years ago. I told that woman, Heather, I would love her. I would be her husband no matter what until death do us part. These years later, only six and a half, but still, all these years later, here I am, that promise is still directing the course of my life. And I would rather die than break it. 
And what I'm telling you is that my resolve to keep my promise pales in comparison to God's resolve to keep his. The first reason God comes and rescues or redeems Israel is not because Israel is so lovable. It's not because Israel is doing such a good job living in God's world the way he wants people to live. It's because God made a promise and he is a keeper of promises. The future of this people was guaranteed not because of them, but because of God and because of something that is true of him. He is a keeper of promises. And it did not matter, everybody look at me, this is important, especially in light of recent events, it did not matter who was in power in Egypt. It did not matter who held the highest seat of human authority in Egypt. No flesh and blood could keep God from establishing his plans and his purposes in the earth. And that is still true today. We panic when we lose sight of who God actually is. And that is all I will say about that this morning. But here it is, God made a promise and he was going to keep it. You gotta wonder this though, 400 years. That's longer you understand than we have been a nation. 400 years. Do you realize that there are people like you and me who lived and died their entire lives under the weight of this oppression and injustice? And God did not move in their generation to do what he's about to do through Moses. Do you realize that those cries that he heard didn't come up for the first time after 400 years? They had been coming up generation after generation after generation. And God sat in heaven and, and said, I, I care, but it's not time yet. Do you know that, that that is important for you and for me to understand this morning? Everybody's crying out for revival. Oh, Lord, bring revival. Bring it again. Bring, bring back the glory of whatever we had and... and Lord, I've been, I've been praying for five years for this person. Five years. Sure, that's a long time for you. That's a long time for me. God looks at Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and says, let me just kind of tell you what I'm going to be doing for the next few weeks. For you, that's 500 years. But with the Lord... A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. Time is not the same to him as it is to us. And he looks at Abraham and he says, for the next 500 years, this is what it's going to look like for you and your, your children and your grandchildren. Listen, for all you and I know, the things that are going to happen in this nation and across the world for the next 200 years can trace themselves back to something God said to someone else 400 years ago. That's why it doesn't make sense to live for yourself and to place yourself at the center of everything. That's why it doesn't make sense to overreact to stuff that happened over the last four years. 
or 12 years. You need a godly perspective of world history, and that's one of the things we gain when we read the Bible. We see a God who's in control of all of this. And one of the first reasons he redeems Israel out of Egypt is to let us know that he keeps promises. And there's another reason why he does it. He actually says this so many times in the first 14 chapters. I'm only going to read some of them for you. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 7. He's speaking to Moses now. He's chosen Moses. That burning bush thing has already happened. I skipped right over it because I figured you could, you could see that. Just watch the uh, Charlton Heston version. I love that one. But he says here in, in chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. Who's the subject of this, by the way, for, so far? We'll come back to that hopefully later. When it comes to salvation, rescue, deliverance, whether we're talking about from Egypt or from sin, it is God doing it. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Exodus chapter 7, verses 4 through 5. Pharaoh will not listen to you, Moses. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Israel will know that I am the Lord and... Egypt will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 17, as God is about to bring the first plague. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus chapter 14, verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen as he drowns them in the Red Sea. What is God after? What is motivating his heart as he takes Israel out of their bondage and brings them into the land that he has prepared for them? He wants Israel. He wants the rest of the world. He wants us today to know that he and he alone is the Lord. That he has no equal. He has no rival. That whereas the gods of the nations are gold and silver, Turn to Psalm chapter 135. Don't, don't lose your place here. Psalm chapter 135. I wasn't going to do this, but let me read this for you. Psalm chapter 135. Starting in verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, 
king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Watch this, verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath or life in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. God in Egypt, as he brings Israel out of Egypt, is distinguish himself and his power from the false gods and their powerlessness. Gods made by human hands who have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear. That he is distinguishing himself. And so when you look at Exodus chapter 2 again, listen to the words. Exodus chapter 2, the cry of Israel comes up and what do you hear about God? And God heard. And God remembered. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. What's he saying? I'm not like one of these gods that you make. He hears. He sees. He knows. He remembers. And, and as, I, as I thought about this this week and I, I prayed, I realized, and here's where it connects with our life. He hears you. He hears you. I read my Bible too much to look at you and tell you that I can promise you he will do what you want him to do in the next 20 years. I can't do that. I love you too much to to set your hopes there and, and to give you a false hope. What I can tell you is this, he hears you. He sees, he knows, and he remembers every promise he's ever made. And you can be guaranteed that if your hopes are set on something that God has promised, you will have it. When? No sooner than he wants you to have it. When is that? I'm not exactly sure. But I know that you should never listen to yourself or anyone else who tells you God cannot hear you or God doesn't care or God doesn't see. He's not like the idols. He hears you today. When I, when I was praying for my father, some of you know my father has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He's, he's just gone through his third round of chemotherapy and is getting ready for radiation. My one and a half year old niece was in the hospital with RSV this past week. It just seems like everything is, you know, I don't know what your life looks like right now, but as we pray, I was so encouraged this week because I had this picture of the God who parted the Red Sea for Moses. And it dawned on me in that moment, that is the one that I am talking to right now. Is anything too hard for him? No, I'm going to take this to him. And it, and it was quick. At that point, I had seen who he was, and it, Lord... My niece, my niece Elizabeth is in the hospital. You hear, you see, you know. Please help her. My dad is is sick. You see, you hear, you know. Please help him. And I want to encourage all of us to just go to God and pray to him like that. That he sees, he hears, he knows, he remembers, he cares. He's listening. 
And maybe you haven't felt like that for years. Maybe you've never felt like that. I'm telling you it's true. And we learn from the story of Exodus that we can't judge these truths based on whether or not God does what we want over a five or 20 year period. We need a broad perspective of who this God is and how he relates to us. We need to trust him and know that he's good and that he hears. One of the reasons God lifts Israel out of Egypt and redeems them is because he kept or was keeping a promise to Abraham. Another reason is that he wanted both Israel and Egypt to know that he was the Lord and that there was none other. He watched thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people die. He didn't just watch it happen. He orchestrated it. And I know some of you have a problem with that. I understand that. I see your faces. Let me tell you something. Listen to why God is doing this. Let's keep reading some of these. Exodus chapter 7, verse 17. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 14, 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus chapter 9, verses 4, or rather verses 14 through 16. But for this very purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It is more important that God's power be displayed and that God's name be proclaimed in the earth than that you and I remain alive. I'm going to say that again. God is of the opinion that it is more important for His power to be displayed in the earth and His name to be proclaimed everywhere in the earth than it is for you or me to stay alive. I got one. It's true. He must increase, we must decrease. Guys, this is true. And so to this very day, we pray for some of these people. We send some of these people. Some of us go, but there are people who risk life and limb to go to a place where Christ has never been proclaimed, and many of them die. And some of us will probably follow them. Moses had no plans when he walked up the backside of that mountain. He had no plans to go to a land where he was a fugitive from justice. He had killed someone. He was on the most wanted list. And God said, you know, no, go back. It's all right. Those people are dead now. Go back. He had no plans to go to that part of the world again. He had finished with that place. God found him. God said, I want you there. Now go. But I can't speak. I gave you your mouth, God says. Go. Use it. I still can't speak. Well, take your brother with you. You think I need you or Aaron to do what I'm about to do? Just go. You think God needs us to do what he's doing in Richmond? Do you really think he needs Redemption Hill Church? But aren't you glad he uses us? Aren't you glad? See, this is why you can never get caught up in that rat race of competition between one church and the next. Well, we're better than the church across the street or across the city. That doesn't, that's foolish. That is foolish. We've lost our compass. We've taken our eyes off of God. And we had quickly better repent, get over that, and realize that we exist because of a promise that God made to another man named Abraham over 4,000 years ago. So does that other church if it's faithful. 
And let's get on with the business of together seeing that God's name is proclaimed here in Richmond. That's what God is after. That's what the Exodus is teaching us. And he, he goes through and he says, I'm keeping my promise and I'm, I'm making things and I'm using your life so that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And there's one other thing that God is doing here in the story of the Exodus that I just want to bring out and then I'll leave it at that. He's very zealous to show us in this story here that in the way he redeems Israel, he's establishing a pattern. God is establishing a pattern that he will continue to use as he is redeeming people like you and me. What he does here in Egypt simply shows a picture of what he is ultimately going to do about 1,500 years later through his son, Jesus Christ. If you will, Pharaoh can represent Satan Egypt can represent sin and bondage to sin. And what you'll find is that God sends a man named Moses to be a deliverer. He sends a deliverer. Look at Exodus chapter 3. We'll come back to the burning bush now. I want you to look at how God redeems Israel. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 3 and then Exodus chapter 12. And you're going to notice some things that are very important about this. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why this bush? is not consumed or burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then the Lord said to him, don't, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and not just to bring them out, but to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with good things, with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I have come down to deliver my people. God is establishing the pattern by which he will not only bring Israel out of Egypt and out of their bondage to their taskmasters, but how he will redeem you and me out of our bondage to sin and all the sinful passions and desires that enslave us on a daily basis.
He must come down to deliver us. And in fact, he's been trying to tell us this all along. Look really quickly. You remember in Genesis chapter, chapter uh, 11, the story of the Tower of Babel? Do you remember that? Well, they started, they all came together and they started to build this tower all the way up to God. Do you remember? And it never quite got there. And the Bible said, God, God looked at it and, and said, let us come down and see what they're doing. And let us judge them and disperse them and confuse their language. But they were building this tower all the way up to heaven and it never quite got there. Now do me a, a quick favor. Look at Genesis chapter 28. Abraham's grandson one day would be fleeing for his life from his twin brother of all people. Jacob was afraid of Esau because of how he had tricked Esau to steal the birthright from him. And one day, Abraham, or rather Jacob, was going to take a nap. If my one and a half year old were here, she would say, nap. She, she winds up that whether it's nap or snack, she says, knack. Daddy, knack. That'll give me some time to find the passage of Scripture. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, Jacob's going to have a dream. I, I strongly advise you, by the way, to buy a different sort of pillow. You see what I mean when I, when I read this. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a, what do you see? A ladder. A little trick. That word ladder in the original Hebrew is the exact same word translated tower in Genesis chapter 11. The tower of Babel that was being built. It's the same word. He saw a ladder. You could say a stairway or a tower. Now watch this one. It was set up on the earth, and the top of it actually reached to heaven this time. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And one day in John chapter 1, verses 50 through 51, Jesus would actually make an allusion to this dream, and he would say, you're surprised. You believe because I, I told you where you were when, when before I, I saw you. I told you you were under a fig tree. He said, listen, you will see even more amazing things than these. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus was saying, I am that stairway, that ladder to heaven. I'm the only one. The ones you build by your own efforts never get there. I get you there. And if you're going to get there, I have to come down. And that's exactly what he would do one day. He would come down to deliver his people. But here you see this ladder. And Jacob, Jacob is dreaming. He sees this. And, and, and at the top of the stairs, you'll, you'll look at this. A promise is reiterated. In verse 13, it says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. He stands at a distance. He stands above on the top of this ladder and, and says, Here's the promise that I gave to your father, Abraham. But notice with Moses, the Lord comes down and he says, Moses, Moses, 
I've come down. I'm not standing at the top of the ladder anymore. I've come down. It's different now. Everything is going to be different. I'm here to save you. I'm here to save my people. And one day, in a much greater sense, the Son of God himself, Jesus, would come. Not standing at the top of the heavenly ladder and telling us what to do. Not standing at the top of that ladder and saying, God has a promise for you. But he would come. He would descend the ladder. He himself, not just angels descending, but he would come down. And he would put on flesh. And he would do something that is spoken about in Exodus chapter 12. Let's turn there right now. In Exodus chapter 12, we get the great story of the Passover. The time had come for God to wrap things up in Egypt. This was it for Pharaoh. God had given him enough time and he was going to put an end to this obstinate king. And he was going to show in no uncertain way that he is more powerful than all the kings of the earth. And that no one can stop his hand when he determines to save. And so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now in Exodus chapter 13, if you read the very beginning of that, in verse 4, you'll see that the month he's talking about is the month of Abib or Abib. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. So go back to Exodus chapter 12. That will become important later because the Passover today is still celebrated in that month. But here's what God says. This month, verse 2 of chapter 12, will be for you the beginning of months, the first month of the year. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male a year old, you may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel. They were going to take the blood of a lamb and they were going to, on the outside of those doors, make the sign of a cross. And watch what God says. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. That's what God was doing. One by one, executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, here's what the Passover is about. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The judgment of God will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God says, I want you to take a perfect, unblemished lamb. I want you to slaughter that lamb. I want you to take the blood. And I want you to put it like that 
on your doorposts and your lintel. And God is establishing a pattern. You will be brought out of your bondage, not just in Egypt, but out of your bondage to slavery and to the slavery of sin by the blood of a spotless and perfect lamb. A sacrifice, one who is your substitute and dies in your place. And then and only then can you be protected from the judgment that is coming across the whole land. It, it would do you no good to be outside of the house saying, but I'm a Jew. But I, I call myself a Christian. Are you under the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? Have you been redeemed, purchased, brought out of bondage to sin and to the devil himself by the blood of Jesus Christ that has set you free? Or do you just call yourself by a particular religious name? One will do you no good. The other will save your eternal soul. God says, I'm establishing a pattern. Some 1,500 years later, he would come down. He wouldn't just send a Moses. He would come down again, this time in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Verse 17, this is Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist, his cousin, says of him in John chapter 1, verse 29, he's, he's baptizing because that's what he does. He's baptizing one day, and his followers are there, and he sees, he sees Jesus walking. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul understood this. And the Corinthians were having all sorts of problems they should have been putting a particular individual out of their fellowship so that he might be taught a valuable lesson and brought back to a right standing with the Lord. But instead they were, I don't know what they were doing, but they weren't, they weren't doing what they should have been doing, bragging about this sin. And, and what Paul says is, listen, don't you understand you should be different? Cleanse out the old leaven that, may, that you may indeed be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. Why? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is now our Passover lamb. That's what God's doing in the story of the Exodus. He's showing us how he's going to save people today as well. So much so that do you realize that the day on the calendar which Jesus was crucified and the very day that he rose is the same day that the Passover lamb was crucified? On the 14th day of this first month, this very day, the Jews still celebrate the Passover in the month of Abib. They might call it Nisan, but if you read Esther chapter 3 verse 7, you'll see how that first month's name was changed to Nisan under Persian influence. But either way, it's the same day on the calendar. And notice what it says here in, in Exodus chapter 12. I love this. It says, tell all the congregation in verse 3 that on the 10th day of the month, you are to select this lamb. The 10th day of this month, right now, this very day, is what you and I know as Palm Sunday. 
when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and they proclaim him the one who is to come in the name of the Lord. The Jews will tell you they still take the Passover lamb and parade it through the streets and put palm branches down in front of it and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On the 10th day, Jesus is identified as this Passover lamb that would be sacrificed. He's observed for about four days. Notice it says here that you shall keep it, verse 6, until the 14th day and then the whole congregation will kill it. The whole congregation of Israel is implicated. So Jesus is there. He rides into Jerusalem on the 10th day of this month. They observe him for a period of four days. And finally, Pilate stands up and says, I find no fault in this man. He is a spotless, without blemish, lamb of God, ready to be sacrificed for you and me. And sacrificed he was on the cross. He took our place. He died in our place. He bled so that you and I can be forgiven. He came down, but not just to come down. He came to come down to be lifted up. And as he was lifted up on the cross, John chapter 3 says it this way. You'll recognize this at some point, but John chapter 3 says it this way. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came down to be our deliverer, but he came down to be lifted up. And now that he's lifted up, he said, when I am lifted up, John 12, 32, I will draw all men to myself. Do you, do you hear him drawing you this morning? Do you hear him drawing you this morning? Same way he called Moses, Moses, Moses. Say your name twice and understand that it is the Lord calling you this morning. And as he told Moses, Moses, don't come near. He says the exact opposite to you this morning. Jesus comes and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You can come to Christ this morning. He's calling you, come to him. For the rest of us, I want us to understand if you've already come to Christ in the past, I want you to keep coming. I want you to keep giving him your heart. I want you to see him as the God of the Exodus who redeems not only Israel out of Egypt, but redeems you and redeems me out of our bondage to sin. And then I want us to live like the new, purified, being purified group of people that we are because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let's pray. It was a long time ago, Lord, that you, you did this and you took Israel out of Egypt by your mighty hand and outstretched arm, but it's still every bit as relevant today. You're taking us out of our bondage to sin and you're bringing us into a good place. It's not a place that many of us recognize. Sometimes we'd prefer those things that would destroy us, but you have the power to release us from our preferences and from our sinful passions and to purify our hearts and to help us to see things from your perspective. I pray that you would help us now. For those of us who have been praying for certain things for decades, I, I, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts with the realization that you hear and that you see. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring every single one of us who does not yet know you as Savior and Lord, that this morning, you, right now, you would have a moment with every such individual 
not altogether unlike the moment you had with Moses when he just, he saw something he had never seen before and just decided to approach it. Would you strengthen the heart of every person in this room this morning who has never approached you in that way to do so right now? And when they hear their name coming from your mouth, help them to say, here I am. And we ask that in your name, Jesus. And everybody said, amen.